0: To create a listener account and in that listener account you can save episodes for later listening so you can create a kind of listening list we think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them please visit the site today welcome to the new books network
2: welcome to the library science channel on new books network my name is jen hoyer and today i'm speaking with bliss Lim, author of the archival afterlives of philippine cinema published by Duke University Press in February 2024. Drawing on cultural policy, queer and feminist theory, materialist media studies, and post-colonial historiography, this book provides an analysis of the crisis-ridden history of Philippine film archiving, a history of lost films, limited access, and collapsed archives. Rather than denigrate underfunded Philippine audiovisual archives in contrast to institutions in the global North, This book shows how archival practices of making do can inspire alternative theoretical and historical approaches to cinema. Bliss Kualim is Professor of Cinema Studies at the University of Toronto. Bliss, welcome
1: to New Books Network. Thank you so much, Jen. I'm very excited to be talking to you
2: before we start talking about your book, I would really love if you could share a little bit with listeners about your background, where you grew up and went to school, and what brought you to your work in film studies?
1: Yeah, so I was born and raised in Manila, and back in high school, I already knew that I wanted to be a teacher, but I was such a handful in high school that I realized I don't think I could manage to be a high school teacher. So I thought, okay, maybe I could teach at the university level. And when I did get to university, which was the University of the Philippines in Diliman, uh, I studied, I majored in English and comparative literature. And after I graduated, I started teaching at my alma mater. Those classes were mostly English composition and surveys of European literature And I like to say that the way I became a film studies scholar was that I followed my students to the movies, meaning to say, you know, one day I was teaching Gertie's Faust and I sort of realized that really high canonical literature was not what was shaping their lives and their desires. So rather television, movies, popular culture, including romance novels in Tagalog, were what were really sort of having an impact on their desires and their sort of subject formation. So I ended up uh, at New York University. I went to the U.S. for graduate school through a Fulbright scholarship. At New York University, I finished an M.A. and a Ph.D. in cinema studies. And my career over the last several decades, has really been teaching in public universities. So I started in the University of the Philippines, uh, Diliman. I taught at the University of California, Irvine. And right now I'm at the University of Toronto. I really believe in this kind of public education commitment, in this dream of public education. I particularly love to do it in a diverse setting. I'm really committed to mentoring first generation students and students of color, queer students of color as well. And um, I would say that teaching really energizes my scholarship. So some of the, to me, really important and resonant ideas in my book actually came out from smart questions that I was asked by students during classroom teaching.
2: That is so exciting to hear. I love hearing about that connection between teaching and and scholarship. Um, So then turning to this book, The Archival Afterlives of Philippine Cinema, could you speak about how the project came to be and what your big goals were for this book?
1: Yeah, so the seed of this book was really sometime in the mid 2000s, a Filipina archivist gave me a thin volume, and it was called Dreaming of a National Audiovisual Archive. Turned out to have been written by a film scholar who was also a huge advocate for audiovisual archiving in the Philippines, Cladualdo del Mundo Jr., and it was published by the Society of Filipino Archivists for Film, Sophia. So this book, I little did I know it then, but it was this pivotal moment when I was initiated into uh, the archive world in the Philippines and it's really deep-seated archive crisis. So you know the history of film archiving in the Philippines is tragically a history of unstable and sometimes collapsed archives. And this has resulted in the fact that of 350 feature length films produced in um, the Philippines during the Spanish colonial and American colonial period, only five survive in uh, their full form. And of these five surviving films, they were all Tagalog language films. That's the national, official national language in the Philippines, along with English. And they were all based, they were all made in the Manila-based film industry, the oldest of which is 1937. Of silent cinema, absolutely nothing survives. And the crisis is even more acute, this huge archival gap is even more acute for films in vernacular languages made outside Manila in, for example, different provincial regions. And so, although the Cebuano or Visayan language film industry was a huge industry and incredibly important to the history of Philippine cinema, not only is there nothing from the silent period, but the oldest surviving film, and it I think only survives on video, is from 1969. So when I started to learn about this really deep-seated archive crisis, I started to understand finally why Filipino film studies was so deeply circumscribed by generation. So an older generation of researchers on film would be writing about studio era classics. And then scholars just maybe eight to 10 years older than me would write about the new cinema of the 1970s to the 1980s. Before I got any kind of access to hard to find rare archival films, I was really only writing about films from the 1990s to the present and scholars younger than me would write about films from the 2000s onwards. And this is because basically in a context of deep archival scarcity, you can only really write about films you have actually seen growing up maybe, um, and films that you might have in your collection. You might have a video or a DVD copy in your collection. And this is so different from the North American context where a young student, maybe in their 20s, wants to research on silent cinema and can just expect to walk into an archive and be able to watch that silent film and write about it. So um, in 2009, I started to conceptualize this book after after I finished my very first book, um, which was translating time and I only really sort of got started writing this book around 2012. So that's kind of embarrassing that it took so long, right? It's coming out in 2024. And it's because some of the initial questions like what happened? Where, why did these archives collapse? Even just the the basic historiographic answers to those questions were so hard to find. The paper trails were long gone and the histories of these institutions were really hard to reconstruct. But after I kind of you know, put together what I think had happened, I realized that the book that I wanted to write was not really about loss, but I think the book I've ended up writing is actually about archival survival. It's about the perseverance of people who love cinema and work in these really inhospitable conditions of underfunding and government indifference. And what I try to really uphold is the resourcefulness and creativity and ingenuity of archivists and activists and advocates and collectors uh, who find workarounds really creative ways of making do in the context of this really fragile archive of Philippine cinema and I wrote the book because I I felt that it was really kind of my duty of care to the archive world that had enabled my own scholarship and I also felt very strongly that the project of the book should not be bewailing this loss or neither lamenting this loss or bewailing this loss and saying oh look how how Awful! how much worse off Philippine film archiving is in relation to these better capitalized, better supported archives in the global North. I wanted to really go beyond mourning and recognize and uphold the ingenuity and resourcefulness of of people who continue to work to preserve and circulate at-risk films so that we can continue to enjoy them and study them you know I I'll talk about this uh, I think a little later but I would say making do means doing what you can with the little that you have and those are the realities of uh, another idea that I sort of uphold in in the book which is imperfect archiving or kind of poor so-called poor archiving and I talk about it um in relation to this idea of Sisyphean and hope. You know, during the pandemic, when I was writing this book, amid all the craziness that was going around us, I was telling my grad student uh, that I was, you know, one of my graduate mentees, that I was really embarrassed that the book had taken so long to write, that some of the key archives that I was talking about were closing or had collapsed or had been shut down by the government as I was writing about them. And he said, you know, people say figuratively, this book is about the struggle. But in your case, the fact that these archives are struggling and actually being endangered and imperiled is exactly what the book is about. So I went back to my introduction and I wrote a new ending to the introduction, which is about Sisyphe and Hope. Um, you know, hope and kind of commitment. I think every activism is fueled by hope. Every advocacy is fueled by by hope. And in the archival world, in the Philippines, you really need to find these rays of hope, even when you're surrounded by s- such a history and such a context of futility. And so I, I understand, I started to understand writing this book that, you know, well, I've always known that I'm not the first to ad- advocate for film archives in the context of a broader push for audiovisual archiving in the Philippines but I started to understand as as I was writing it that that all advocacies address a public that they hope will be you know moved to to care about the plight of whatever it is that that they're um advocating for. In this case, you know, I I want, you know, like other advocates for audiovisual archiving, I want a broader public to care about what has happened to Philippine cinema and to the precariousness of really important film collections. And all kinds of writing to a public, you know, and Michael Warner makes this argument, are attempts to bring that public into being. And so part of what I'm trying to do is, you know, address and therefore kind of co-constitute uh, a public that cares about Philippine film archives, uses and, and enjoys and and thinks about the films that are that are being um, collected in these archives and, and wants these archives to thrive.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. Um, And you make some really, really beautiful points about, about hope that I really appreciated. I love the, um, just the overall vibe of um, finding real value in archives, even if they can't last. Uh, And that is not something that we're typically taught. It's not what we're supposed to aspire to, but it's what some of us have to deal with in, in the archives we work with.
1: And so it's really valuable to have that, that lens. Yeah, thank Um, you for that. I think ephemerality is anathema to the idea of archiving, and we'll probably get into that. But I would say the fact that some of these really important initiatives, like to recirculate, really difficult to find films, to try to build an audience for them, let's say, an audience for experimental or avant-garde films that have all but been forgotten, which is the work of the Kalampag Tracking Agency that I talk about uh, in one of my chapters. It's this two-person micro-curatorial initiative, and it has done so much to recirculate these films. So Kalampag is still up and running, but as I started to look at those kinds of really tiny initiatives based on volunteer labor, where people have to carve time out of their lives to do this really passionate unpaid work, unsalaried work, without any kind of infrastructure of funding and support. I realized that they were part of a longer history of all these short-lived initiatives that were so inventive, but ultimately in the long run failed to survive and I don't think that those initiatives being short-lived makes them in any way insignificant. And the fact that you can actually string together a sort of horizon of these short-lived initiatives, all of which push, push a little further and learn from what has come before, I think is a different kind of lasting, enduring hope, even if the specific individual folks and initiatives themselves did not survive
0: i don't know about you but i'm very busy and i don't have a lot of time to cook that's why i subscribe to factor eating better is easy with factors delicious ready to eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes you'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto these are two minute meals slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: Absolutely. Um, And I want to talk more about a couple of the key concepts. You introduced some really great keywords in the introduction. Um, One is also in the title, um, this concept of the anarchive. And I'm really curious what the origins of this term are and how you understand it and why it's been so important, especially for your study of cinema in the Philippines
1: yeah thank you for that question and um and for noticing that i talk about philippine cinema as as being caught in an anarchival condition so to begin with i would say that the very idea of the archive, archiving, involves a kind of fantasy of permanence, the idea that traces and fragments of the past have been deposited somewhere. And in a repository that we call an archive, they are being preserved for posterity and that there's this idea of safekeeping. But You know, Ray Edmondson, who writes about audiovisual archiving is hugely important in the field, says "There there is never any kind of permanent preservation. Everything is only being preserved, right? Meaning that it's an ongoing struggle. And for media archivists, media archivists know that all we can do with temperature and humidity controls is delay an inevitable process of decay and um, therefore there is this, you know, there is this kind of medial materiality in which analog and digital media are very vulnerable to deterioration. Digital media in particular can't really just be preserved forever, but they have to be constantly converted, remediated, transferred to uh, new new carriers and formats. But especially in the Philippines, this, this history of institutional collapse of archives that failed to survive or are imperiled in some way or in some way unsustainable, really directly contradicts this fantasy of permanent preservation and safekeeping. So when I refer to an anarchival condition in the Philippines, I mean that in Philippine cinema, you have um, this context and this history of very short-lived, very precarious, and very unsustainable kind of um, institutional collections, and some of them are even just the informal collections that have also been imperiled. And I got this idea of the Anarchive, I drew this from uh, French philosopher Jacques Derrida's book, The Archive Fever, where Derrida talks about the Anarchive as this internal contradiction that burns in the heart of every archive. And he evokes the archive as these forces of impending loss, of forgetfulness, of destruction that invariably threaten all of our attempts to preserve and to remember. So it's these kinds of inevitable forces of forgetting that all archivists are up against. And, you know, if... If we weren't up against loss and forgetting, why would we be committed to archives in the first place? I say we, because I love archives and archivists, but I myself, and as I say in the book, I'm entirely an amateur. I have no you know, professional librarian le- librarianship or archival training. but I couldn't do any work at all if it weren't for archives. And so then Akira Lippitt draws on this idea of the anarchive in his book Atomic Light, and he adds to Derrida's idea this kind of relationship to movies, and, and Lipit argues that the prefix cine in cinema could be understood as not only referring to movement, the moving image, but it could also be understood as referring to singers. the fact that you know, photochemical film will inevitably be reduced to ash, right, to ashes. And so in my book, what I refer to as an an archival condition are these conditions of limited access to films, um, because in many ways, these archives are so hard pressed that the best they can do is maintain their collection. They don't actually have the funding or the staffing To to kind of make this broadly accessible to the public and and to promote their collection, conditions of archival scarcity, deterioration, you know, inevitable media deterioration that you're just trying to control or delay, uh, forms of institutional instability. But, you know, the, the key word in my title is archival afterlives. So, with that, I was trying to talk about survival in the midst of this loss. so this idea of a kind of posthumous survival after the collapse of a prior archive or the loss of the of a of a preexisting version of this work so one of my first examples in this book is uh a movie called Ibong Adarna. Uh, So the translation in English would be Adarna Bird from 1941. It's a studio era classic uh, sound film directed by Vicente Salumbides. It has some of the first color, hand tinted color frames in the history of Philippine cinema. And um, it was the last known nitrate film in the Philippines in the early aughts. And, you know, in its 2005 restoration, in which uh, folks worked with a uh, nitrate dupe negative and then restored it uh, and transferred it onto polyester film, I found out 15 years later that, you know, the nitrate film didn't survive. Because after the restoration was completed, two years after the restoration was completed in in 2005, in 2007, this nitrate dupe negative, which was the last surviving nitrate element in the Philippines, was intentionally destroyed. And this was because of several factors. You know, first, there was no national film archive to house notoriously flammable nitrate. Um, The you know, the studio that had produced the film, LVN, its own laboratories were closed. So they didn't feel that they had a place where they could safely store this nitrate copy. And uh, ABS-CBN film, which was uh, a corporate archive um, that in the long 25 years where there wasn't a national film archive funded by the government, um, they were the de facto national film archive, even though they were a private corporate archive, they declined to to house flammable nitrate in their vaults because that might endanger other titles in their collection. And so, so this, this last remaining nitrate element was actually intentionally destroyed. And I talk about this as, you know, something being lost as survival, right? Something being preserved. So ibong Adarna today preserved at the cost of destruction, right? Um, And this is not unique, these kinds of archival horror stories of, of survival amid destruction are not unique to Philippine cinema. So there's a 2011 controversial digital restoration of George Meliez's 1902 trip to the moon and very famously lobster films, when they made their digital restoration of that film, you know, they ended up reducing the hand tinted nitrate source to fragments. So there are all these stories where films survive, but it's a kind of posthumous survival. They survive after death. And um, that's one of the reasons why the title of the book is The Archival Afterlives of Philippine Cinema.
2: Yeah. Um. So to start talking about some of these archives that you've, you've written about, the first two chapters look at formal archives, so government film archives, major media corporate archives. Could you talk a little bit what some of those collections are in the what we learn from them about the impact of government on the fate of archives and about the ways that governments and corporations prioritize the work done in archives, as well as this resulting in archival act- afterlife generated by all of them. Yeah, that.
1: thank you. Um, so, the history of formal archives in the Philippines uh, for cinema. Is really a crisis-ridden history, and first of all, film archiving in the Philippines got a late start. So, in North America and Europe, the first film archives start out in the late 1930s, but in the Philippines, despite calls to have formal film archives that were first issued, you know, in newspaper editorials in the 19 teens during the American colonial period, the government did not actually set up any. Um, formal film archives until the film archive of the Philippines was set up in 1981. And very sadly, that first national film archive only survived five years. So it closed in 1986 when the Marcos dictatorship was overthrown by a popular revolt, right? the Edsa People Power Revolt. And it was 25 long years before a new national film archive was set up and that was reestablished in 2011. It has since been rebranded, the Philippine Film Archive or the PFA. And in those 25 gap years, what happened was not only was so much, were countless titles lost, some of them were melted for silver, some of them just, just deteriorated. But in those gap years where the, of government indifference, right? Where there was no state, um, repository for um the Philippine film heritage, uh this huge media conglomerate, ABS C B N stepped in. And so much of the surviving, much of the surviving media holdings um, of uh, the Philippines, especially in terms of, of film, have been privatized. And so it, as I think I already mentioned earlier, for those gap years, many film historians regarded the ABS-CBN, a private corporate collection, to be the de facto National Film Archive. But under the Duterte regime in 2020, that all-important archive, the ABS-CBN Film Archive, was actually shut down. And so was it its parent conglomerate. And this was part of President Rodrigo Duterte's attempt to muzzle news outlets that were critical of his regime and the human rights violations of his regime. And so, you know, I was finishing the film in the midst of, uh, sorry, I was finishing the book in the midst of all these really catastrophic archive closures. And uh, that's when one of these, you know, a long time ago when I'd started the the book in 2012, um, uh, a major uh, advocate and archivist had said to me, Tedico, who has recently passed away, he had said to me, the history of archiving in the Philippines for Philippine cinema is a Sisyphean history. And then when the ABS-CBN archive was shut down, you know, it it's, it's still there, but it now has a skeletal staff, right? And all of its restorations have been halted. Um, and this this ABS-CBN Film Archive had the biggest number of restorations, over over 200 restorations by 2021. So this is is a really major loss. You know, another archivist said in 2020 to me, apropos of of what had happened to ABS-CBN, he said, you know, the history of film archiving in the Philippines is, you know, you have hope and then suddenly no hope and you're always, switching between these these two modalities. And that's why I kind of came to this. You know, again, there was this evocation, you know, eight years later of the myth of Sisyphus and, and the sense that you need to persevere even if everything is telling you that, um, that this is an exercise in futility. And this is not just some metaphor in my book. You know, people continue to do what they must and what they can do. Uh, amid really
2: unarchival conditions. Yeah, absolutely. And then this other thread that you follow in subsequent chapters in this book is that of informal and decentralized archives. Could you talk a little bit about what those projects are and what their role has been in, in continuing access to Philippine cinema? I'm really curious about who uses these archives and what kinds of films are made uniquely available through them?
1: Yeah, thank you for that. So, around 2020, um, when we were all, you know, about to be, early 2020, when we were all about to be stuck in our homes because of the COVID pandemic, I had pretty much finished the book, I thought, and then I was having lunch a really cheap lunch with two dear queer friends Uh, I myself identify as queer in Ikea of all places and I said to them you know the the book is done but it's but it's missing this piece Um, which is that I think I have this kind of tunnel vision I'm only I'm only writing about formal archives like government and corporate archives and I'm only writing about Tagalog language films, you know, the national language films that are, that were made in Manila, but actually, you know, ordinary people who are film buffs can't actually walk into these government archives because the gatekeeping and the bars to entry are so high. So actually, I want to write, I actually, there's actually more I want to write. And they, they said to me, you know, forget about that, write the book that you want to write. And, um, you know, they said this to me over Swedish meatballs. And then I ended up, you know, really, really writing about these informal archives, by which I mean, so the last few chapters of my book are all about all these film collections that don't call themselves archives, but they collect and they maintain and they make accessible and they recirculate films that would have been otherwise completely lost to public memory. And so the first uh, example that I talk about is this legendary brick and mortar um, video store called Video 48, which sadly also closed to the public uh, during the pandemic for different reasons, sort of crazy government licensing, requirements, but also that there just wasn't enough foot foot traffic for this video store during the pandemic. And Video 48 um, just made accessible all of these studio era, vintage Tagalog movie classics. And it was the kind of lifelong passion of this collector. Um, Simon Santos. And the other example that I talk about is, I've already said a little bit about them, but it's the Kalampag tracking agency, which is this, I call them a micro curatorial initiative, two person initiative. Sometimes they would just do uh, screenings out of the back of somebody's house, right? A kind of residential space. And that's not unusual in the history of, of avant-garde and experimental cinema for it to be a small circle of, of, of cinephiles um small screenings that were sort of both private and public because they might just be in some volunteers homes you know or some some volunteer curators homes and i and what they did was they recirculated avant-garde and experimental films and videos that in some cases even the filmmakers no longer had copies of and then they would, you know, slowly as news of their work start started to spread, they got invitations from foreign film festivals um, to show their, you know, program of avant-garde shorts to uh, international audiences. They also were invited by the National Film Archive of the Philippines, now called the Philippine Film Archive, to also curate these programs for um a broader Filipino public, and what they would usually ask for if, if, you know, the film festival or, or the organization abroad would have the wherewithal for it would be a kind of donation in kind, meaning to say, the help that they would get was that they were um, able to, to make better and better transfers of these deteriorating works. So this is a low to no budget kind of initiative. These are all kind of reciprocal exchanges and they're in a spirit of generosity rather than a spirit of jealously guarding your rights, you know, to something. Um, Because almost all of these uh, avant-garde and experimental shorts have never been in commercial distribution. Um, And they were therefore able to kind of recirculate and make accessible and create better and better transfers of films that would have been otherwise and videos that would have been otherwise completely lost. So in a later point in my book, I start to consider these sorts of networks of, of circulation for media in the Philippines as a kind of river system. And if we think of this as a kind of riverine system where some places have kind of more or less unimpeded flow, but then some paths are completely blocked, then I was thinking of Video 48 and Kalampag as these crucial headwaters without which um, Philippine cinema's kind of archival circuits would have long ago run dry. And I think about you know the kind of archival world in the Philippines as a sort of river system, networks of circulation that Uh, involve both formal and informal players. And that's why half of the book is about formal archives and the other half of the book is about informal initiatives.
2: Well, thank you. Yeah, and one other thing that you write about is also the people. And you Mm -hmm. note in the introduction that your book centers the labor of audiovisual archivists and advocates. over the course of your research, what did you learn from the standpoints of these audiovisual archivists, whether they work in formal or informal archives? And you've written a lot about their resourcefulness. We've you've mentioned already this making do. Um, how did you feel that the resourcefulness of these archivists shifts archival power in those spaces in those collections?
1: Yeah. Um, so. You're a librarian, and as I told you, I love librarians. I think um, archivists are people. I always tell this to any student of mine who's just going to embark on um, research at a other library or a formal collection or an archive, which is that the true finding aid to any collection is really less so the database or the card catalog or whatever that might be. The true finding aid is always a person who really knows their collection and can help you guide your way through it. So in in many ways, this is just, the book is just my attempt to acknowledge this profound debt of gratitude, uh, which is in Tagalog utangan loob, you know a kind of deep inner debt that my work and the work of all film scholars have to media archivists so i'm indebted to archivists for their generosity and their candor about what actually happened in the institutions that um that collapsed um and that they were a part of and that they start that they kept working at in order to protect the collections despite the kind of formal death of the archive, and although, you know, um, queer and straight men and women are part of the archival world, really it's women archivists who have been particularly central to my research. Some of them were middle managers at archives that had been closed at the stroke of a bureaucratic pen by um, government officials who were appointed to these short key short-term film positions. They were in charge of really crucial archives but had no knowledge of archiving and then would just shut down an archive because they believed that now that we're in a digital age, you know, analog media and photochemical film don't matter. And so there were these women archivists who did their best to protect what remained of their fragile collections. And there were also, for example, there's a video store clerk at Video 48 who taught me so much about that collection. And so these, you know, Ray Edmondson writes that professional archivists are a very tiny, uh, there's very few of them globally, right? Barely five figures, he said, in this profession globally. But for me, as, as I wrote the book, I started to realize that this very small class of people actually wield enormous power over our cultural memory. And that film and media studies uh, my own discipline, cinema studies, is really strongly indebted to archives and archivists, but rarely builds in their insights into our research, you know, the standpoints of actual archivists on the collections that we draw on in order to study cinema. And this situation is starting to change. There's, there's more and more special journal issues on um, archives and archivists that cinema scholars are reading so there's the um, moving image and archiving program at miap at nyu so this this is all starting to change but you know i think my book is still just one of a handful of works that are trying to bring the insights of archival theory, theory, theory and the self theorizing of actual archivists um into cinema studies as a discipline and one of the things that i one practice that i kind of draw on to understand um to understand cinema history is this practice of making do as i've said you know it's a translation of a um, Filipino idiom, which is gawan paraan. So I'm not talking here about Desirto's notion of making do, which is more about kind of creative consumer practices. I'm really kind of translating this Philippine idiom gawan paraan or "gumuahan ng paraan, which is an exhortation to someone to find a way to do something, to forge a path, even if there are incredible obstacles. And... Um, you know, one of the ways that they do this, they find a way to recirculate and make sure that deteriorating films survive in some form, no matter how imperfect, um, is are these really durable practices of makeshift migration in the Philippines? So in the 1980s, this new cinema director named Mike DeLeon, you know, realized that um the films made by his grandmother studio LVN films were deteriorating and he had no money to do a proper telecine transfer so he just projected these films and then he aimed a Betamax camera at them and then those surviving Betamax recordings they're Betamax so they they can't get rid of the flicker um but they are now, in some cases, the last surviving copies we have of those lost films. And similarly, in 2015, when I was you know, trying to coordinate with archivists to and technicians to digitize these deteriorating 1970s propaganda films, some of our last remaining records of a period of martial law, a very dark period in Philippine history, they said to me that they were going to do a kinescope transfer. But when I got there, they really just aimed the projected the film on an ordinary office wall. And then they, they aimed a digital camera at it and then they recorded it. And that was the, that was the transfer. And, you know, this kind of transfer, these kinds of make-do migrations, they end up like capturing everything, including the dust on the wall, you know? And that's the kind of temporal palimpsest, right? They're recording their anarchival conditions as much as they're recording the content. And I, rather than denigrate these practices, I really champion them as really versatile, kind of ingenious um, modes of resourcefulness. And, And as I was reading about what other, about kind of media cultures in the global South, you know, what folks in Latin America, South and Southeast Asia, Africa are doing, I started to realize that this kind of ingenuity, these forms of making do, you got to do something, even if you have nothing uh, to do it with, um, are really a kind of durable dimension of media cultures in the global South.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um... And this book is so rich. I hope that listeners pick it up and read it because we can't talk about everything. But is there anything else that you want to share about the book that I haven't thought to ask you
1: about? Um, I just, you know, there wasn't a way in these questions to talk about the kind of queer work that the book does. But I'm really, really indebted to kind of queer feminist um, thought in this book, you know, in, in part because, Um, queer and feminist thought, and then the dovetailing of both of them. So to center the the points made by archivists and to recognize their own thoughts on their work and their own experiences as a form of self-theorizing, I drew on feminist epistemologies. And then in terms of the kind of speculative work that you have to do when there are too many gaps to fill right? There's too much that's been lost in the kind of history you're trying to reconstitute because the archive is so scant. I drew on, you know, um, queer work, like the work of Tina Takemoto to talk about the kind of speculative creativity that you do when you're trying to reconstitute a lost queer history. And there's one chapter in particular where, um, you know, classical archival theory often disavows its Kind of gendered and sexualized norms. So, um, uh, for example, classical archival theory tended to imagine the historian as male and understood the archivist as the kind of female handmaiden to the male historian's work. And I think the book unsettles those kinds of Gendered and, and sexualized understandings or imaginations of archiving. And in particular, there's a chapter I love where I'm writing about a lesbian classic, a movie called T Bird and I or T Bird at the from the early 1980s that was um, restored in um, the, you know, was I think restored in 2011 and uh, or might have been 2015. And, you know, when I was writing about that film, I was understanding that this film might be today considered homophobic and transphobic, but it's a kind of window to the sort of queer subcultures of 1980s Manila and its jargon, its queer slang. You know, this word T-bird is pretty untranslatable. It has some analogs to art. To our contemporary understandings of, let's say, tomboy or trans masculinity or lesbian, but it's really not translatable to those concepts. And um, as a result, there's a kind of anachronism that you need to encounter and work through um, and not subsume or sublimate. You know, the differences between that. That films, it's really fun, it's super campy. It has these two huge superstars, Nora Honora and Vilma Santos from Philippine cinema brought on screen in a kind of lesbian um, uh, love quadrangle, I guess. And, you know, the language of that film and, and its understandings of queerness and of sexuality and of gender are totally not those of the contemporary LGBTQ plus movement. And so that I think is one of the sort of rich encounters that um, that plunging into the film film archive of the Philippines can offer.
2: Thank you. And I've taken a lot of your time. But before we wrap up, I would love if you could share a little bit about what you're working on next. Do you have any new projects that have grown out of this book or anything completely new and different you're doing now that it's done?
1: Um, I'm a little overworked, so I'm doing a lot of things, but um, one that has grown out of this book is a work in progress essay that is in an anthology called Remembering Martial Law. This, This anthology hasn't gotten off the ground yet. I think it's in a book proposal stage. One of the things that I've been thinking about is the degree to which Filipinos' inability to access our own film history has led to a kind of wider cultural amnesia, and it foments the kind of national complacency that we saw towards extrajudicial killings, right, um, state-sanctioned terrorism under the recent presidency of Rodrigo Duderte. His term was 2016 to 2022, and I think the fact that there was no kind of broad movement that, I mean, people... People protested, you know, both in the Philippines and abroad, you know, all the kind of rampant human rights violations that were being done in the name of Duterte's drug war, anti-drug war. But there was no sort of broad movement that rose up against, you know, these extrajudicial killings. And I think it is, this complacency was, and the fact that Duterte remained popular, right, and that his daughter is now the vice president, is rooted in a kind of forgetting of the abuses of the of the martial law era in a prior regime, which was under the Marcos era. Um, and Ferdinand Marcos declared martial law in 1972, and there were a lot of extrajudicial killings in that time as well. And you know, in 2022, you know, the late dictator's son actually won the presidency. Bongbong Marcos, right, won the presidency. So the Marcos and Duterte regimes are, you know, they're continuing into the foreseeable future, right? Marcos sits in the presidency and uh, Duterte sits as as vice presidents uh, of the Philippines. And so you see how authoritarian regimes can perpetuate themselves in a context of pronounced cultural amnesia, and they have an investment in, in really enforcing that cultural amnesia. So in this new work, this new essay, I'm talking about a kind of flip side where this this really worrisome aspects of forgetting and historical revisionism um, rekindle a kind of belated commitment to radical remembering. And so I'm talking about this film called Respeto from 2017, uh, which is about street rap and it's incredibly sonically rich and vibrant, but it's drawing these links between state-sanctioned terrorism under Duterte and under um, the former you know, dictator Ferdinand Marcos, and the film ends with these arresting images of archival catastrophe, like an archive, a paper archive just completely blown up. And I link that to, as a way of talking about the real dangers faced by radical archives that collect what are called underground rebel papers. So these were collections that somehow survived the Marcos dictatorship's really um, horrific anti-subversion laws. But on the eve of martial law's 50th anniversary in 2021, there were a series of library purges um, and harassment of librarians and destruction of underground leftist papers that were um, conducted by Duterte's anti-insurgency, anti-communist task force. And so I think that what I'm trying to kind of do is, is foreground these kinds of uh, modes of attempted erasure of oppositional historical consciousness um, as a for as a form of state terrorism and and really contest those attempts to erase our national memory.
2: That sounds really interesting. Uh, well, thank you so much, Bliss. It's been great to talk with you um, once again. I've been speaking today with Bliss Kwa Lim author of The The Archival Afterlives of Philippine Cinema, published by Duke University Press. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you've been listening to New Books Network.